and increasingly curious. Grasping the smooth, whitewashed railing, Lizzie gazed out upon the sun-splashed gardens where the alluring fragrance of magnolia drifted on the balmy air above the neatly pruned hedgerows. Across the street, a shaft of sunlight bathed the steeple of St. John's Church in a rosy glow like a benediction from heaven, blessing the bride and groom, blessing the vows they would soon take. It was a perfect spring day in Richmond, the sort of April morning that inspired bad poetry and impulsive declarations of affection best kept to oneself. Lizzie could almost forget that not far away, in the heart of the city, a furious debate was raging, a searing prelude to the vote that would determine whether her beloved Virginia would follow the southern cotton states out of the fragmenting nation. Despite the clamor and frenzy that had surged in Richmond in the weeks leading up to the secession convention, Lizzie staunchly believed that reason, pragmatism, and loyalty would triumph in the end. Unionist delegates outnumbered secessionist fire-eaters two to one, and Virginians were too proud of their heritage as the birthplace of Washington, Jefferson, and Madison to leave the nation their honored forebears had founded. Still, she had to admit that John Lewis's increasing pessimism troubled her. Mr. Lewis, a longtime family friend serving as a delegate from Rockingham County, had been the Van Loo's guest throughout the convention, and his ominous reports of shouting matches erupting in closed sessions made her uneasy. So, too, did the gathering of a splinter group of adamant secessionists only a block and a half away from the Capitol although outwardly she made light of the so-called Spontaneous People's Convention. How could a convention be both spontaneous and arranged well in advance, with time for the sending and accepting of invitations, she had mocked, but the tentative, worried smiles her mother and brother had given her in reply were but a small reward. Although Lizzie managed such shows of levity from time to time, she could not ignore the disquieting signs that the people of Richmond were declaring themselves for the Confederacy in ever greater numbers. Less than a week before, when word reached the city of the Union garrison's surrender at Fort Sumter in Charleston, neighbors and strangers alike had thronged into the streets, shouting and crying and flinging their hats into the air. Impromptu parades had formed, and bands had played spirited renditions of Dixie and the Marseillaise. Down by the riverside at the Tredegar Ironworks, thousands had cheered as a newly cast cannon fired off a thunderous salute to the victors. Lizzie had been dismayed to see, waving here and there above the heads of the crowd, home-sown flags boasting the South Carolina Palmetto, or the three stripes and seven stars of the Confederacy. But when the crowd marched to the governor's mansion, instead of giving them the speech they demanded, John Letcher urged them to all go home. Lizzie had been heartened by the governor's refusal to cower before the mob, and she prayed that his example would help other wavering Unionists find their courage and remember their duty. But two days later, word came to Richmond that President Lincoln had called for 75,000 militia to put down the rebellion, and Virginia would be required to provide her share. Many Virginians who had been ambivalent about secession until then had become outraged by the president's demand that they go to war against their fellow Southerners, 
and they defiantly joined the clamor of voices shouting for Virginia to leave the Union. John Minor Botts, a Whig and perhaps the most outspoken and steadfast Unionist in Richmond politics, had called the mobilization proclamation the most unfortunate state paper that ever issued from any executive since the establishment of the government. But would it prove to be the straw that broke the camel's back? Lizzie could not allow herself to believe it. Rational men will not cave in to the demands of the mob, Lizzie had argued to Mr. Lewis that very morning. Like herself, he was a Virginia native, born in 1818, and a Whig. Unlike her, he was married, had children, and could vote. They will heed the demands of their consciences and the law. A few crumbs of Hannah's light, buttery biscuits fell free from Mr. Lewis's dark beard.